Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Educated Home Buyer Live. This is where Josh and myself answer your mortgage and real estate questions right here live while we update you on the Fed, interest rates, the economy, everything that affects housing. So Josh, this past week is another week for the books with regards to mortgage rates, right? So we've seen mortgage rates essentially on some sort of we'll call it a steady decline for the better part of five weeks. And with that, a lot of improvement. Um, overall, um, you know, mortgage demands picked up across the board. Uh, so Josh, what, what's the reasoning? I think we're going to talk about it in some charts, but uh, expectations over the next couple of days with some additional information coming out. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this week has just been a boatload of jobs data, right? Yesterday, we got jolts. We're going to go through that. Today, we got ADP. Tomorrow, we get weekly payroll, uh, which is important for new unemployment complaints, claims, continuing claims. And then Friday, we get the monthly report for November. So two for two so far in week data, um, less job openings yesterday, uh, less job creations from ADP today. Uh, You know, really, we've seen so much positive data which is negative data for the economy, positive data for bonds uh, over the last month that it's easy to just say, hey, every day, only thing, it only goes in one direction. Um, You and I every morning keep going, when do we get a little correction from here? We think the downtrend is the the right move and it's not a false move, um, but you just don't normally see 30, 35, 40 trading days just continuously go in the same direction. So um, multiple options of what can happen for a short-term correction, but... um, We talk about on the upside where rates were going up, irrationally almost going up. We talk about markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent and stay the heck out of the way. It works the same way on on the downside. So we're seeing this aggressive downtrend. You don't necessarily want to get out of the way too early and leave some gains on the table. Um, So normally we are sitting here telling you um, with the two-year trend of rates going up, just lock. If you're happy with the rate, if you qualify, lock and get the heck out of the way. Right now, um, my advice to most people, tell me what your thoughts are here, Jeb, is have your finger on the trigger and on any weakness, go ahead and lock. But you want to give it some room to run because it's looking like we'll get weak data again tomorrow, weak data on Friday, and that could push us through some important technical levels. And at some point, the massive short interest in bonds is going to get squeezed out. I'm stunned that more of the shorts haven't got squeezed yet in a almost 100 basis point move and 90 basis point move to the downside. But at a certain point, they're going to feel enough pain that that itself will fuel the rally absent fundamentals pushing it. Yeah. And you said something important, right? I mean, bad news is essentially good news for interest rates. So it's not like we're sitting here cheering for a bunch of terrible news for the economy the things that are happening now just basically shows more of a slowing economy not not necessarily a hard landing more of a soft landing in the economy assuming all the data kind of continues at this rate so that's more of a positive thing um in that regard but the fact that jolts missed uh adp came in less than expected we got jobless claims nfp on friday like you mentioned then next week we have cpi so if all three of those in theory are less than expectations. Um, that's positive news for interest rates. And you could see rates continue to to move down. But kind of going back on what you said there, I mean, so I, you know, a lot of people know that I bought a house, uh, what, just over a month ago, Josh, I took a 7% rate, um, got quoted today 6.75 on the same loan with no cost. So I could refinance today 6.75, all my costs are covered. And I you know, nothing happened. So a quarter percent drop on my loan amount, which is a jumbo loan amount in better part of 30 days. Um, that's, that's a pretty sizable move. Um, tell, tell, tell the listeners why that's not typical, not normal, not just, I mean, the context of a move that quick, perfectly coinciding, coinciding with your closing, 
but how that is not typical that that lender is willing and able to just rewrite your loan 30 days later. Yeah. So that's something we've talked about oftentimes, right? So when, when you get a loan from a lender, typically speaking, that lender makes their money um, on, on the yield spread um, on the back end of that loan. So if they're not charging you points, chances are they're, they're making money from, from the, the, the other side of it, if you will, in, in simple terms. And what happens is if that loan gets refinanced within a six month period of time, oftentimes that lender has to pay back the money that they're, they, they made on that loan. Um, in this case, it's a bigger bank. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I, I haven't had the conversation. They aren't in a position where that's an issue or they're making enough money off of it to pay that and still make some money. I don't know. Uh, but either way, it's it's not normal. So if you are going through that process, you just bought a house and you're going to refinance quickly, call the lender that did your loan and at least have the courtesy to say, this is what I'm getting. Can you can you do something? Because otherwise they could end up getting screwed in, in, in the short run if you decide to do that. So it's not normal that you can just refinance as rates go down continuously like this. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But with that, Josh, 80 people are currently listening. Um, quick little pat on the back here or a, a mention of the latest podcast that dropped. If you guys haven't listened to that, I, I will go out on a limb and say it's the best episode that we've done um, with Matt Graham, MBS Live. It is good stuff. The Educated Home Buyer Podcast. Go over and check it out. It's the latest interview with Matt Graham. He talks about rates. He talked about specifically what we're seeing right now in rates and how quickly rates could come down because of all of this data that we're seeing right now. So this was recorded a week ago, was posted Tuesday. And since that, rates have probably dropped a quarter percent. I mean, since he had that that you know conversation with us. And based off what he said, it could go, I mean, he's talking a point by the end of the year from where it was at that time, the possibility. So go check it out if you haven't done so already. But Josh, let's dive into some charts as we always do and take a look at inventory. So total inventory, we have now seen the peak in inventory, uh, currently sitting at 556,000 homes, which obviously is less than it was last week, but we're still a little bit higher than we were the same week last year. So we still haven't broken below last year's trend. So even though we've peaked, we're headed down, but we're still above where we were this time last year. Orange County sitting at 2 1 or 2,173 homes, Huntington Beach at 182. Both of those are less than they have been the previous two weeks, which likely also means a peak here in inventory for Orange County. Uh, same chart that we always look at, uh, just kind of going back a little bit further in time to show you where things were in a more normal market looking at 2019 and beyond. This week, we saw the biggest drop in new listings that we've seen the entire year, um, sitting just below where we were this time last year in new listings on the market. So for all of those people calling for the crash in home prices because all the Airbnbs are going to come to the market, all of these foreclosures are hitting the market, it clearly is not happening. It's not showing up. You know, Logan Matashami, which we're doing an interview with Housing Wire uh, towards the end of December, he says if you want to see a market, like if you want to see where basically the market's headed, you got to pay attention to this chart right here because it will show up in the new listings data. Until you get a spike in new listings data week over week over week, you're not going to see a big change in the housing market overall just because it's going to show up in this chart first. Well, with, with that, Jeb, remember, yep. if you're watching at home, you know this looking at the chart. But if you guys don't look at these charts regularly, in January, the listings are going to be going up. So it's not a matter of saying, oh, listings are going up. This is that turnaround that Logan was talking about that Jeb referenced. Yep. That is normal seasonality. What you want to see, these are the last three years. So this is what has happened over the last three. You would see an aberration. You would see that line going significantly higher than the last three years if we were seeing some sort of inflection point where listings were going higher and there was going to be downward pressure on prices due to additional supply. And, and also keep in mind, we are at such a low bar any real rise in, in new listings is going to show an uptick, right? I mean, we're going to move up in, in new listings. So you've got to see new listings go, I mean, again, month over month over month over month to see any real change in the data just because we're sitting still at historic lows when it comes to these numbers. This is a chart that basically shows inventory change 23 to 22. Um, so year over year, the lighter color uh, less than a 50% change in year over year inventory. And, and then the darker red is more than a 50% change year over year. 
you know, here West Coast, pretty much, you know, you can kind of see the chart. If, you, if you're watching this at uh, on audio or watching it, if you're watching it on audio, you're doing something spectacular. But if you're, you're listening you're to magician. it <laughs> on, on audio, you're not seeing the charts. We'll put a link in the, the description where you can go check it out. But you guys can kind of see here where you're seeing more inventory come to the market versus where inventory remains more or less a problem instead of kind of going over it state by state. That would take a while. Week over week, again, as I mentioned, we went from 565, 565,000 to 555,000, roughly a 10,000 drop in weekly inventory. Last week or last year, same week, we went from 564 to 550. So as I mentioned, still a little bit before or a little bit uh, higher than we were this time last year. Our peak this year was at 569, which was what, two weeks ago. Uh, price drops still sitting 39% versus where we were 43%. So even though rates hit 8%, you got less people doing price cuts this time versus last year. Same chart or same information, just kind of showing you back previous years, also showing you back all the way back to 2018 where price cuts were. So seeing price cuts at a peak this time of year is normal. Um, it, this is the time things peak and you're going to see them continue to come down all the way through pretty much April, May, if, if historical trends follow what this chart shows. And then median home price. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, median home price sitting at 425, less than it was, uh, you know, four months ago, three, four months ago. Um, but you can kind of see the flow here, right? This time of year, we start to see the lows and then things start to pick up um, as we get towards, uh, you know, here in the next couple of months, you'll start to see the, the numbers ramp up again. And then median price of new listings sitting at 372. And then Josh, we talked about the 10 year, we've talked about rates. I mean, this just shows you, I mean, this is hard to see on this chart just because it's not zoomed in, but you can see where we peaked and where we pulled back on that 10 year and essentially interest rates have more or less followed. Absolutely. Um, and we'll go, we'll get another look at that a little, a much more zoomed in than what you have there. Um, just wanted to give you guys a reminder, this chart, we've looked at it before, um, but this shows you the most aggressive rate hiking cycle in the history of the Fed was the early 80s, August of 1980 started to be exact. And it's basically a red line straight up 10 and a half percent. 10.5% higher over five months. We have the current cycle. We're up 5% over, it's less than 24 months. So is it 20, something, something like that, 20 months? So uh, if you compare it to any other hiking cycle, it's it's very, very aggressive. So we had a comment on uh, the, the YouTube channel off of Matt Graham's episode and questioning or challenging that would we see Fed cuts next year? Did we only see Fed cuts uh, when there's a recession? Something until something breaks, they won't cut. So the the flaw in the logic there, there's it's correct. If you go back and look at the chart, so looking at the chart, yeah. you looking at it that. historically, hindsight. Hindsight. That's the issue. Oftentimes these recessions aren't called until a year or two after the fact. So the Fed wasn't going, hey guys, we got a recession, let's cut. The Fed goes, hey, we're seeing issues, we cut. And then magically 12, 24 months later, the NBER goes back and goes, hey, that was a recession. So um, we're going to look at a bunch of info real quick like here and just roll through this that's going to kind of support that. We talked about jolts, um, had peaked up at 11,755. We're at 8,733 and that's in millions, 8.7 million job openings. Pre-pandemic, we were at about seven, but that is right in line with the, the trend. So we're kind of back down to where that long-term trend should have been, but you can also see a straight downtrend from that 11.7 million down to 8.7. That is what the Fed was wanting to see. Um, more importantly, yeah. the next chart you can see is we have had revisions in one, two, three, four, five of the last eight or nine months, downward revisions. So when those numbers come out a month later, the next months come out and we're seeing lower numbers from, from that end in terms of job opening. So um, it's not quite as grim as what it looked. And maybe that it, part of that data, it was leading into Fed thinking that was making the heights, hikes bigger than they need to be. This is a quote from ADP's economists. We talked about their numbers came out today. We've talked about this before. Restaurants and hotels were the biggest job creators during the post-pandemic recovery. That boost is behind us and the return to trend in leisure and hospitality suggests the economy as a whole will see more moderate hiring and wage growth, growth in 2024. Then there's the numbers here. You can see only 103,000 jobs creations well below the average of the last two, three years. It was below right. expectations. We had low expectations, Jeb, of 130, and it came in at 103. Well, let's also talk about this. We've said it before, but just mention the difference between ADP 
only looking at the private sector versus non-farm payroll. So there's two different reports, right? This is one, comes out on Wednesday. NFP comes out on Friday. What's the biggest difference there, Josh? Well, ADP sampling is, as you said, it's private payrolls through ADP sources. It's kind of like when we look at the Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index, that's real Optimal Blue data. They are a system that is used by many, but not all lenders, and they analyze that data and deliver it. ADP used by many, but clearly not all employers, and they analyze this data and extrapolate what is happening in the private sector in terms of jobs. So Friday will also include government uh, jobs. And there's two pieces to that. They do a household survey and they do an establishment survey. So they call businesses and say, hey, what's going on? They call households and they say, what's going on? So we've had months here recently, Jeb, where we have big job creations and unemployment goes up just because those two surveys don't really uh, jive. Who's the person at home actually taking the call? That's what I want to know. One of these guys calls me and wants to talk. No, dude, I don't have time to talk to you about my payroll. Like, what's Jeb, going on? That's that's part of the problem, Jeb. In that pre-pandemic and go back even 10 years ago, they were getting a three three X response rate relative to what they are right now. So they're having to sort of do statistical adjustments and read more into it with a smaller sample. So it's more prone to revisions, errors yep. than what it ever has been. Um, this is an interesting one. Indeed, another private company uh, looks at quits rate. How many people are voluntarily quitting their jobs? We heard this quiet quitting. People are you know, being able to extort their employers for big pay raises or leave for higher paying jobs. We are back down to the 2019 average uh, in terms of quit rates. Thought that was interesting. One thing that we've seen here, um, unit labor costs. So this is a CPI and unit labor, unit labor costs, both of them trending down. So wage gains are still going up and they're actually going up slightly higher than inflation now. For a period, they weren't keeping pace with inflation. They're slightly above that, but productivity is up. So the cost of producing any widget, or we just talked about hospitality, renting out any hotel room, the cost of that is going down because we're getting more productivity per employee, possibly AI and robots, Jeb. This one here uh, is how does AI clean a, a, a hotel room? I, I don't know, but clearly it's happening. But this one here, um, we've talked about this GDP trending down massively. Um, the Atlanta Fed at the beginning of any quarter, the data that comes in generally overstates GDP by a lot. They are down like a, almost a percent in just the last week in their estimate. And they're down now where the blue chip estimates have been. So somewhere around 1.2% forecast growth for the fourth quarter, much lower than what they're currently saying is 5.2 for the last quarter, but that will also likely be revised down. Some of the things that look um, sort of roll into inflation here, we talk about this a lot, food and energy. Those are not counted into the core because they're very volatile. Both of those are volatile, but have been trending in the right direction for us here. Um, there was some, some deflation. Now they've come up a little bit trending sideways, but they're not contributing meaningfully to inflation the way they were 12 months ago. And again, for those of you guys out there screaming, things are really expensive. Inflation is still a problem. Inflation is the rate of growth. We are not seeing prices go down, but we're not seeing them increase the way they were. That's what we mean when we're seeing inflation moderated or not much of a problem. This one here, I wanted to throw in just for Wesley's benefit. We had a conversation here on the show about a year ago where he took exception to us saying that the current uh, political climate in the U.S. was unfriendly towards oil production. And you see that uh, peach line there at the top uh, had just gone sideways for about two, three years. And you see it magically follows uh, a dip right at the 2020 election sideways. And then now it has gone back up. The United States is the world's leading oil producer. So that's great. We've seen prices go up, oil producers, energy producers have responded uh, by producing more, but we could push prices much lower. We're still under producing oil. So in any case, the US is the world's leading oil producer by a large and growing margin. Why aren't prices lower here? Many reasons, but a big one is we produce a lot more than we can refine into usable fuels. So if you want something interesting, go and Google uh, what what is possible in terms of building new refineries and keeping your gas prices down. We've got plenty of oil. We don't have refining capacity. Um, we also, Jeb had the Bank of Canada came out with basically their Fed meeting today. Thought this was interesting. Uh, they're mirroring a lot of what our Fed says. Indicators su suggest economy is no longer in excess demand. Economy growth, economic growth has stalled. Higher rates are clearly restraining spending. Labor market continues to ease. Wants to see further sustained easing in core inflation. Global financial conditions of ease and oil prices are 10% lower per barrel 
than the bank had forecast in October. Basically, what we just looked at at the charts there. And, and I think you you had something what uh, England today similar message in 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 their thing, basically more or less saying that the the full extent of of what they've done hasn't hit the market yet. Um, in in layman terms, what they're saying. So, you know, slowing is likely to continue just because of all the things that have been done over the last 12, 18 months. Yeah. And, and just looking at this, this is um, similar to that GDP now number, this U.S. inflation rate, this is determined by what we would be seeing today if all of the data reflects in. So the trend can absolutely change, but you see it's been sideways there at about that 3.02 trending down. Government would like to see it at 2%. You had mentioned earlier, Jeb, uh, FedWatch, this is the, the futures market saying now a 53% chance of a cut in March. And realistically, it's 53 uh, to 40%. So if you say actually a half percent cut has a 6.8% chance, they're saying a 60% chance of some form of cut, 40% chance of them staying the same, basically no chance at this point in time of them hiking. That 10-year treasury, this time, you know, uh, five days ago, we were up above the 434 level. We're down. I didn't see where we closed, Jeb. Did it close at 411? Somewhere in there. I, I didn't I didn't look at the final, but, but I think it's like, yeah, four rates down another quarter percent over last week. Um, this is an important look here. This is a weekly chart of mortgage bonds. So we've seen this big run up over the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven last seven weeks. So two months of improvements. But we're right here at an important pivot. So some of that data here needs to bust us through this. And if that happens, we could get back to the best levels we've seen, you know, all of this year and going back to mid 22. I would expect that, but it's all going to be data dependent. We need to get more bond friendly news showing um, this. We are now projecting a floor down around somewhere around 395. Jeb, you and I ran some numbers earlier today. 410, 411 is going to be a tough one to break through. Once we get through, there's a, another chunk of resistance at four. Then there's a lot of, of room to go down. But we've seen a big move in one direction. Mm -hmm. Doesn't generally just go in one direction. It will not be surprising to see a, a little bit of a give back before we get more. Um, wanted to give you guys both numbers here, both sets of numbers. We talk a lot about Mortgage News Daily, Optimal Blue. If you want to go out and Google numbers, these are the two most accurate sets you're going to get. You're going to see they don't agree and they kind of... Um, uh, disagree in different ways. So Optimal Blue, just under 7% on a 30-year performing. Mortgage News Daily, just over 7%. And if we look over there on the FHA, Mortgage News Daily is much more accurate on this, somewhere around 6.4, whereas Optimal Blue is about 6.8. So good data, good information, massively better, uh, at least a percent, if not a little bit more than a percent better than just about 30 days ago. So if we go back bigger picture, it's about where we were 90 days ago. So does this mean, hey, break out the, the balloons and, and throw a party? No, it just means we probably had a little period there that was an aberration, a little blow off in the market. And now we're going to find out going forward what the new normal is. Agreed. Um, and we're getting a lot of comments around uh, the idea that rates go lower. Doesn't that fuel like, uh, you know, prices going up and affordability? And you you and I have talked about this, Josh. And the problem is, even if rates move lower, um, they need to move like considerably lower to really help out with housing affordability. I mean, housing affordability, the latest stat that came out uh, last month with California Association of Realtors, and granted, they're using rates at, you know, I think the, the number they were using was in the seven somewhere. Um, but housing affordability, California is like 15%, which is the lowest level it's ever been. And so, yes, lower rates will drive some buyer demand, but it's unlikely to see any big moves in prices going up, you know, in, in these higher tier price points, just because affordability is an issue. It, it is yeah. an issue and you're stuck. Put, yeah. it, put it in perspective. 90 days ago, we were all sitting here going, oh my God, these rates are terrible. They're pushing 7%. So just because today is now, hey, look how awesome this is. It's a percent better. It still sucks. It still is harmful for affordability. It's still an issue. So if we look forward, I, you and I both agree, listen to the Matt Graham episode. He goes in detail of the reasons why we think so. This time next year, rates are probably a percent lower. But even that, we're at 6%. Go back at, at the beginning of 22 and everyone has had 6% rates. Oh my God, that's awful. No one will be able to buy. So we need a number close to 5% before people start saying, 
that's a, a good number. I'm a, a comfortable number. I'm okay with that. I will step in. No one's going to be ecstatic because they're still going to have that memory of 3% rates in their head, but at least at 5%, affordability is probably, for California, you're saying at 15%, it's probably 25 to 30%. Is that a great number? No, it's not a great number, but it does lead to a lot more sales volume than what we're seeing right now. And lower rates add more to add more stability to the market. So that that lessens the the likelihood of any sort of drop in prices. But affordability on the other side of that coin, if you will, keeps prices from going up too much. Now, with that, you're still likely to see, you know, like a lot of these reports, three, four, five percent appreciation year over year. Could that still happen? Sure. With rates coming down in somewhere in the five percent, I mean in the mid fives, high high fives, sixes, sure, you could still see that. But you're not going to see any considerable difference. So I think a lot of people out there want to see something major happen, right? It's not, you know, the, 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 we're not in a market for that at the moment. It's it's fun to write headlines that say, hey, the market's going to crash and drop 40%. And I found one tiny little piece of data that if we break out the magnifying glass and ignore all the context, that's what's going to happen. And it gets a lot of views, but there's not anything dramatic going to happen. We had the dramatic spike in 2020 and 2021, there's no room for a dramatic spike. We don't have enough affordability. And even at 5% rates, we don't have enough affordability for a dramatic spike. So realistically, we've got a pretty narrow range of outcomes. Could you see a little decrease, especially if rates go up? Absolutely. Could you see a little increase? We just saw it this year. So as much yeah. as everyone says, hey, no one can afford, people can afford. I talk to people every day that we pre-approve that go out, buy homes, got a contract in today. There are people buying homes that can easily and comfortably afford the homes. This may blow you guys' minds. The contract I got today, million dollar home, borrowers having to do a bank statement loan with a terrible credit score. They're taking an 11% interest rate on that with 20% down. So think about that. Everyone likes to think, hey, you can, no one can afford. That buyer says, well, I want a house and this is what it takes to get it. So give it to me. There you go. And you're going to give it to him at 11%. We're going to give it to him. Uh, question here. So Josh, this is uh, worth addressing. Says, if rates go to the upper fives, as predicted in your recent podcast by the end of the year, not predicted. It was, it could happen. That that That's what the podcast said. Didn't say Not the base but, case, but within the realm of possibility. Yes, exactly. Would the Fed be fine with buyers coming back and overbidding on homes again? So does the Fed care if you overbid on a home? What, what does the Fed care about? I guess is the better question here. They have two mandates, full employment and price stability. So you could price make stability a case in, what? In, in general overall prices. So what did we have? We had inflation get way out of control and a large portion of that, which we've been predicting, that's why CPI is going to be coming down, PCEs will be coming down, is because of the housing inflation components coming down. So they would indirectly be concerned with it if it turned around and that was trending back up. But remember how they measure is goofy. We've got owner's equivalent rents. We have um, lodging away from home, which is like the hotel stuff we were talking about. So it's goofy measurements and it doesn't necessarily come right into it. And there's a big lag in it. So those dummies would do the same thing they did when inflation exactly. was getting out of control. The same thing they've done as inflation is coming under control. They would be late to the party to figuring it out. All right. There you go. All right. So let's try to get off the subject here and talk about something else, Josh. Everything's around rates. Um, the, no, the, the last question here comes in. I, I, I like this one. This is really for you. Dan, the man, 1689 says, do you think the people that can afford are being more particular given the rates and prices, therefore less desirable, such as two bedroom, two bath become more affordable? So really two separate questions. Are, are the qualified buyers, since there's less of them being more picky, and does that may, mean some of the homes that may be less desirable would become more affordable for other people? I mean, there's I, I could get behind some of that logic. I think in, in, in some cases that's probably true, accurate. Um, is it a hundred percent across the board on every kit? No, not every buyer is going to think like that, but I think for some, yeah, but I, I think that's how you should be thinking the whole time. I mean, it's probably more pronounced now because rates are higher payments suck. You know, you're kind of like, eh, should I really do this? But that's really what you should be thinking about the whole time. Is this the right house? Is this the one that fits my needs? Is this the one I'm going to be in five, seven, 10 years? A lot of people got really lucky and bought in 2020 having no real idea that home prices were going to appreciate 20, 30, 40% in a two-year period of time. Got really lucky, right? That's not normal. And so we always talk about have that longer-term time horizon. So I think that's the way you got to be thinking even in this market. Now with that, the homes that are, you know, the uh, less desirable qualities to some extent, the ones that you know, are sitting on the market a little bit longer, those homes are going to be the best opportunities. 
in a high rate environment. Now, as rates come down, depending on what happens to supply, buyers might go out and buy those homes again, just because there's also, you're going to have really fear of missing out again. There's going to be a a portion of people who, as rates come down, have that, I'm not going to do this again. I'm never going to, I'm not going to lose out this time. I'm going to buy a house and they're going to just get a house. And then there's going to be a portion of people that say, rates are going to continue to go lower. I'm going to wait until they hit 3% again. Those people will never buy a house. I've seen it. I mean, I, I had people from Josh 2017, 2019, when rates were higher. As rates went down, they never bought. Was it rates? Was it affordability? Maybe all of the above. But nevertheless, there's there's a portion of people that kind of fit across the board in, in all of these little buckets, if you will. Um, so just buy when it's the right time in your life. Have some money in the bank, have a longer term time horizon and buy a house that you can see yourself being in for this this period of time that we're talking about. Jeb, Mike has yep. asked a question a couple of times. It's a super easy one. So yep. did new construction home prices drop from the peak in 2022? Um, there's not a national average. It's a median. They don't take the average. An average will be pick up all the homes that sell, average the prices they sell at. They go to the median. So half of the homes sell above, half mm-hmm. sell below. Peaked in October of 2022 at 496.8. The most recent number is 409.300. Does that mean the prices of new homes are coming down? It does not. Builders have a lot of ways to manipulate that number. Um, they can build smaller homes. So in that short of a time frame, unlikely that they were able to build smaller homes. But what happens is buyers getting squeezed on prices go, hey, instead of $100,000 of upgrades, I'll get by with you know laminate countertops instead of Corian. Uh, I don't need hardwood floors. I don't need a tile backsplash. So definitely, I, I would say there's some of both, a little bit of moderation in prices, but a big moderation in the mix of what's selling in terms of upgrades and size of homes. And where builders have variability and options in what they can build, they're building smaller, cheaper homes because they know that's what moving is moving in the current market. There you go. Good stuff. Um, let's see. Um, you know, do we we can't address this one, right? So is it possible that if interest rates did come down low enough that more folks would go would let go of their low rates and supply may pick up? Otherwise, what is stopping buildings builders from building more? So there's two different questions here again. Um, the first question is would it increase supply? So the idea that it would increase supply is something you have to kind of take a step back and and what are you calling supply? Would more homes come to the market? Yes. But does that truly increase supply is is the real question. And the answer is how many of those people putting their homes on the market because there's a lower rate are also buying another house, taking it off the market? Because if we're talking net increase in inventory, then there's probably very little gain from from lower rates. And so that's, I guess, the the idea that you have to consider here is that if, you know, if anybody is waiting for rates to go lower to sell their house, then they're a buyer because otherwise they would just sell their house now if they're not buying anything. Like, what would be the reason for holding them up? And therefore, if they're t- putting one on, taking one off, you don't have that net gain in inventory. So there's that portion. Now, Josh, why don't builders build more homes? Time and money. They have to find land. At a price that makes sense, they have to get that land entitled. So go through the planning, permitting, going through the cities, getting water, sewer, all those fun things in there. Um, so it's not a matter the, the cost of it. it. Everything has to be economically viable from the land, the holding time, the financing. So realizing even these big national builders, KB Homes doesn't just have a war chest of cash that they go, hey, we're going to buy this. They're financing it. So what are their financing costs? Triple what they were, double what they were, just like yours are. So it makes it even harder for something to pencil. So does that mean that they can't react to a need for more supply or a hot market that they felt comfortable selling into? Remember, these companies were burned hard. And that was 15 years ago. It seems recent because it was such a terrible time. But it was a while ago. But they were burned so hard that they're like, you know what, we will leave some profit on the table before we ever oversupply this market. So when you look, Jeb, you show the charts every month when they come out that what, uh, you know, homes available for sale takes into account anything that's been permitted. And you're like, those aren't available for sale. They're not completed. So we have a record level of, of homes permitted. So they could, in a fairly quick period of time, bring a lot of homes to market. But remember, for the last year, they've been discounting in the form of buying down interest rates to get people into homes. And that's taken their margins from like 30% down to 20%. 
they want their margins at 30%. So they would rather keep supply tight and keep their margins high when their financing costs are, are low. This is, I mean, imagine you and I are just normal people. We can't do math at that level, but they have very sophisticated financial models. They know what it makes sense. And controlling that supply is more important to them than chasing every dollar by helping the market with more supply. Yeah, and if you pay any attention to builder confidence numbers, right, they've kind of been on a downtrend because of where rates are, right? Builders don't want to have to build in, in this environment. So as, as rates start to, you know, moderate and there's some stability there, then you'll see probably some, some you know, confidence numbers go up and then you'll start to see some new construction. But even then, you're, you're I mean, you're talking six, nine, 12 months, two years for some of this stuff to be built. So it's not instantaneous. And a lot of these builders that build homes aren't building spec homes. They're building homes with buyers in contract. So there's a buyer that has their deposit there in contract and they're building a home for that buyer. And so you got to think there, you know, a lot of people say, Hey, all these communities are just sitting empty. Yeah. Maybe there's some, but that's not the majority. That's not, you know, every community out there doesn't work like that. These guys are smarter than they were. So they, they actually, you know, paid attention to history. And, Dan had a quick a quick follow yep. up in here. Has the federal, state, local government ever provided some sort of incentive for builders? In history, they may have, but let's just go back to the last thing I just said. They, their margins have gone down from 30% to 20%. The government doesn't help companies that are hitting 20% margins on a $420,000 product. So the short answer is you're thinking, hey, would the government do this to help buyers? No, not for an industry that has 20% margins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw a, a, a good question here, Josh, um, that I do, I don't want to say I don't, um, we kind of addressed this. I mean, this is why does California have like no new construction? The cost to build in California is significantly higher than it is in other States. Uh, plus cost of land, just regulatory cost. I mean, the, the whole process, like Josh said, of entitlement and going through the building permits and, um, you know, regulatory committees to make sure the land is buildable. And, you know, we're all of these different, you know, statutes or, or, or different layers that Californians have to go through it to build a house. I think at one point, Josh, it was nearly a hundred thousand dollars to be able to like build a house or $96,000 yeah. before the shovel hits the ground. Yeah. Before you ever break land. So, I mean, that's why people aren't just out there lining up, you know, building homes. Um, Josh is easy question here. Can you use dividends income from a brokerage account to help you qualify for a mortgage or to help your DTI? I think we had this question come up uh, a month or two ago and here's the important part. Yes. As long as you're declaring them on your tax return, so we can see a two-year history of it. And more importantly, you still have those assets. Let's say you have a million dollars in the bank and it's kicking off, you know, $2,000, $3,000 a month for you. You're like, cool, I can use that to qualify, right? Well, not if we're using 500,000 of that for a down payment. We have to still have the asset after the fact. So that's the important part. We have to show you have the assets, the assets produce that income in the form of you declaring it on your taxes the last couple of years. All right, Josh, this is going to be a question that comes up a lot. I'm actually going to do a YouTube video on it because... It is something that happens and is going to happen a lot over the next probably six months to a year. And that is my rate has come down a quarter percent. Can I ask for the rate to be adjusted? So nearly every lender has a float down policy. We talk about this Explain every week. Explain what that means. A, a rate lock is a rate lock. If rates go from seven back up to 8%, they're going to give you the 7%. And in return, they expect you to not come back and go, hey, it went from seven to 6.75. I'd like that too. It's not heads I win, tails I win too. It, it has to be a win-win. Well, they're, they're giving you protection if you want it and you're giving your word that you're going to close. Now, that being protection? said, I don't know. It goes back to our earlier conversation. So the, the bigger picture there is that lenders have to weigh the cost of broken locks and, and that renegotiation versus losing the deal altogether. So when we see a move that is significant, so in the last month, a percent movement in rates is like 400 basis points in terms of mortgage bonds. What happens is generally the rate has to move at least a quarter of a percent and there's a half point hit to you, not a half point in rate, but a half point in fee. So we just talked, we have a four point improvement over the last month. If you wanted to renegotiate that, that equates to about a full percent move lower. So you meet that criteria and they're gonna say, cool, 400 basis points or a four point improvement. 
we're going to keep a half of that as a cost. So you get the majority of the benefit, but not all of it to recognize the additional hedging cost for them for that broken lock. So absolutely always ask your lender may not always be possible, but ask what your options are. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I did my latest loan, um, you know, one of the things was, Hey, if rates go down, they have to move in a significant way for them to reconsider it. Um, you know, if it went down an eighth, it wasn't really an option. If it went down, I think like, th I think it was like three eighths of a point, they would consider allowing me to go down. And what happened was it ended up going down from, I was at almost seven and a quarter. I was at seven and a quarter It ended up with 7% because it did go down enough for me to take in a lower rate. They readjusted it. Excuse me. But like that said, like Josh said, it, every lender doesn't work that way. Um, and it's, you know, you gotta, you know, that's why we always say, lock when you're comfortable with the rate, right? Because it's not lock at whatever rate. And then if rates move, I get to change my mind with whatever it, it you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, but Russell followed up with the question said, am I going to take the, the arm at 6.75? I'm not yet. Um, I believe rates are going to trend a little bit lower. Um, I, I had the conversation. Let's look at it again on Friday and see where it is. I mean, at the end of the day, there's, it's a net positive to me either way, right? Because I, there's no closing costs involved. It, there's enough spread there for me to pay my closing costs that I come up with no money out of pocket and I benefit from a lower rate and a lower payment. So even if I took today and, and did this, I could do it, but I think there's another eighth, maybe another quarter in there um, before I take advantage of it. And so, so we'll see what happens. Jeb, let's, let's use this as sort of a, a real number and a real life example. If you're comfortable with it, what, what's your loan amount? A uh, million bucks. So a million bucks. We talked about this. What's the rule of thumb? 125,000 divided by your loan amount tells you how much that has to move for it to make sense. An eighth. So for, so for Jeb, an eighth. And he's saying, hey, there's a quarter on the table. So we've also talked about this. He's going, well, I think it's going to go lower. And yes, it's no cost. The lender is giving me a credit to cover all of my closing costs. So he's saying, that's a lot of work, effort, energy. And I certainly don't want to do it and then do it again in another 30 to 60 days if I'm right. So he's willing to potentially leave that money on the table. But it's justifiable by the numbers. I told him to take it because I'm like, we don't know. We think rates are moving lower. But when you say we can lock in that gain. And this lender clearly doesn't care. This bank, they're keeping the loans on their books. They don't care. They're going to let you do it in another 30 or 60 days. So other than the additional work of continually providing them updated documentation, that is really Jeb's only risk in that situation. Now, think of it in terms of if you have a $250,000 loan, now we need a half percent move. So mm -hmm. this situation wouldn't even be an option for Jeb. Um, but it, it varies. It just varies by loan size and what your tolerance and willingness is to go through the hoops of providing documentation, signing docs, all that stuff, even if it's a no-cost loan. Yeah, exactly. So um, you got to do what you're comfortable with. That's, that's what it, what it boils down to. We talk about it all the time. Uh, Josh, this, um, came up, um, you know, and, and something that's probably going to happen again over a lot over the next couple of months, we're under contract with a builder, but we found a different builder with a better deal. Will we lose our earnest money? And do you think the first builder will negotiate with us if we are thinking of walking? Josh, I'm going to throw it your way. What are your thoughts on this? I would think it unlikely, but um, I, I would think it unlikely. And, but it, it all comes down to, again, supply and demand. How many homes do they have for sale? How many people do they have walking into their sales office? Um, it, it's going to vary by region. It's going to vary by price range. So the only way to find out is to go in and ask the question. Yeah. I, I mean, my thoughts on it are, are this. It doesn't hurt to ask. Um, will you lose your deposit if you walk? I can almost guarantee you the answer is yes on that. Um, just unless you have some contingencies in place that allow you to back out for some reason. But even then, you know, the thing with builder contracts is they are written to protect the builder. They are not written to protect you, the buyer. Um, whereas like a residential purchase agreement, like a state residential purchase agreement, like say, for example, the the, the CAR, the California Association of Realtors are the ones behind the purchase agreement here in the state of California. It protects the buyer the seller and the broker, right? It's there for all three parties, if you will. The builder, there's there's multiple parties involved, but it really only protects one. So um, keep that in mind. If you do walk, you're probably going to lose it, but there's an opportunity there for renegotiation. But what I would say is look at the inventory. Do they have a lot of inventory? Are their homes just sitting on the market, not doing anything? 
if if that's the case, then there might be an opportunity. If the answer is no, then I, I would think that you're probably out of luck. Jeb, I got a fun question here. We're oh, keep, let's hear it. We're going to keep Jeb, Jeb on the hot seat. Our friend Richard wants to know, Jeb, is Josh your lone guy for your new place? So this may be an so, interesting so Josh has done, from this Yeah, so Josh has done my loans for the better part of 10 years. Um, this last loan he did not do. Uh, and the only reason he didn't is because the the bank that I went with ended up having a product product that Josh couldn't match the terms on. And at the end of the day, I needed a lower monthly payment because of the amount I was financing and it just made more sense. So well, let, I gave let's, Josh, Jeb, yeah. let, let's give it a little more color than that. Yeah. I, I, I gave Josh it. a crack at it though. It's like, he did. Hey, Josh, if you can we, do this, we could have matched it. This. Yeah. I was going to make about $5 and it was with a lender <laughs> that I was not comfortable with. Hmm. So I can make $5 Great. potentially piss off one of my best friends and business partners. So I said, I think it's better for you to go there. And that's part of the reason why we talk, especially if you're in, in the jumbo space, niche stuff, talk to at least two lenders. So you, you know, what's out there. We could have, we could have got him the similar number, but it would have puckered me for the better part of three to four weeks okay. to make sure that that lender partner actually closed on time. And towards the end of it, I could have even gotten a better rate with, with other people. Like I, I obviously have a lot of friends in the industry. Right. And so, but I was loyal to the person that originally did the loan just because it was all said and done. They updated it. It was an easy process, right? It was very easy. That said, so yeah, I went that direction. And just one but, last bit of color on that, Jeb, you're yeah. right. You know, people, I know people. So you checked with probably four people. Is that about right? Yeah. Three or four people that I, that I reached out. Yeah. And all people that we know and trust. So yeah. Jeb was going to be comfortable with any of them. What what I see gets really dicey on a big thing like this. Someone calls me and go, oh, someone told me they can do it for an eighth less. Or someone can save me $1,500 yeah, yeah, no, no, no. on a million dollar loan. And you're like, how'd you find them? How do you know them? Anyone ever worked with them before? I've never heard of that company. So at a certain point, you have to make sure shopping is important. But as we always say, make sure that someone that you know, like, and trust is an expert and isn't going to lead you down the primrose path because these are important transactions on closings. It's not like a refi with, Hey, we get 30 days down the line. I can pitch this person overboard and go find someone new. You got to close. I mean, at the end of the day, if I had another 30 days to close that, I would have waited because I, I, I had a, an idea that rates were going lower and I could have gotten a lower rate, but I didn't have that opportunity, right? It was just take what you can get and you got to move on. So that's, that's where we are. All right, Josh, uh, do Joyce is asking, do I, this is never a good question, right? Never <laughs> a good question. Nobody asks for a good real estate attorney when it's positive. Maybe stuff. they mean like one of those closing attorneys that does the closing for you. They're not, you don't know, have to sue Joyce, someone. I do, need... I do know a really good real estate attorney, um, depending on Mine's what you're better. looking for. Mine's like, better. Mine's better. His might be better. Yes. Uh, my, my one is my friend, um, and a good attorney and, somebody that I would trust to do. Any oh business shit. Account. I know. I know Jeb's too. His is really good. I like both but of them. We that said, he doesn't do everything with regards to real estate, right? Most attorneys don't do probate and uh, tenant evictions and you know, whatever it's like, they specialize in one piece of real estate, typically speaking. So depends on what you're looking for, but reach out, email me, um, DM me, whatever it is that you do. And uh, tell me a little bit about what you're looking for. And I'll see if I can put you in touch with somebody. If it's here in California, if it's any other state, I can't really help you because I don't know anybody. Uh, Josh, um, I think this is a good segue to, you know, we just talked about lenders, Josh, you know, and we talked about Josh being one of the lenders. But if you need a lender anywhere in the United States, there's a link right there on the bottom of the screen. Use it as in a reference point, as a referral, just to get another quote to talk to somebody. Um, it could be Josh here locally. Uh, if you're on the West Coast, it could be uh, one of our other partners nationwide. Um, but it's somebody I know, like, and trust that can guide you through that process. Real estate agents as well. A lot of you have used it and had really good success and have been positive about it. So that um, that's good news. So, uh, all right, Josh, good question coming up here. Well, King, King Crow's asking a, a couple questions uh, that I was going to throw up here. So first off, let's go back to the, so he says, can I buy a home 5% down conventional and rent it? Uh, he also did another question said asking price is 585. I'm asking for a $15,000 credit. Is this a good move? So a couple things going on, on here. Um, First off, say, thanks for the super chat. But Josh, two different questions. I guess you can answer this one first and then answer 
the one so about here's, uh, here's, here's the thing. renting it. This is kind of what we always talk about. If someone's willing to sell to you for $585 with a $15,000 credit, they would be willing to sell to you for $570 with no credit. So the real question is, which of those two is the better option? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to pencil both of them out. What may be interesting in the current market for you would be getting just enough of a credit to make sure you're not paying anything for your loan to cover all of your non-recurring closing costs, um, any points, fees, credit report, appraisal, escrow, title, that stuff. So you have no sunk cost into your loan. So if rates are lower, six, 12 months from now, like we think they're going to be, you can refinance with no worries and move into a, a lower rate. Now, if you sit here and go, nope, this is a miracle that rates have dropped a percent and I think they're going to 14%. I want to lock that in. The $15,000 credit can help you buy the interest rate down. So it just depends on where you're feeling the market is headed. Um, I would lean more towards taking just enough credit to not have any money into my loan. Uh, and see if I can get that price down a little bit. Now, the second piece, this question, Jeb, has come up a lot. Can I buy a home 5% down conventional and rent it? No, you cannot. Um, So what we had recently is a change where Fannie and Freddie will allow two to four units to be purchased with 5% down, owner-occupied. So anything non-owner still has higher down payment requirements. Now, if you don't own another property or if the property you're buying intending to rent makes sense as an occupied property, it's something that could be packaged that way. The only thing preventing you from buying it owner-occupied and getting owner-occupied terms and then renting it out is the fact that you're signing under penalty of perjury in those loan documents that you intend to occupy that home as your primary residence within 60 days of closing. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Josh, couple questions here. I, you know, we're getting down to that time of the show where we don't have a lot of time left, but there's some good questions here that I want to knock out. Uh, one of them is from Joe. Uh, we're going to, Willing's got a question too, that started the show and we kind of skipped over that, but we'll come back to it. Uh, if you put 20% down, Josh, or if you put 20% or more down, can you choose not to escrow? and pay taxes insurance separately? Unless the loan is FHA, yes. FHA, you could put 85% down. They're going to still require you to impound. Um, VA, many lenders will require it. The VA doesn't themselves require it. So to, would be a lender overlay if they don't allow it. And it's usually not even 10%, uh, 20%. 10% will usually be enough to allow you to make the choice between whether to impound or not. All right. Good, good. Uh, willing. Where did Willing start the show, Josh? Um they had a question on a float down. We kind of addressed the float down question. There was another one here. Um, well, it, me, the question, yeah, go ahead. There's, there's Joyce has a follow up here. How can you use a VA loan to buy another house when it's meaning the VA entitlement is tied up on another house that you're planning to rent? Uh, it's called secondary entitlement or bonus entitlement. So it depends on how much of your entitlement was used up on the first one. So there will be a calculation and it may mean you can't do the purchase zero down. It could be a little down. It could be a big down. Uh, In essence, remember what the VA does is with zero down, they're guaranteeing 25% for the lender as if you put 25% down. So it's a calculation that we have to go through. So I'm not sure where you're at, Joyce, but reach out to me uh, directly. Send us us a message, an email at info at theeducatedhomebuyer.com. We'll go through it and, and I can walk you through the calculations. A little bit complex, a little bit confusing. If you go to my YouTube channel, we have a whole hour that we did on it on Vetted VA Live. Um, so it's just uh, at Josh Lewis CMC on uh, on YouTube and you can go deep down that rabbit hole or just reach out either way. All right. Uh, it looks like the main question that 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 Willing had was the, the float down. You address that or asking for a lower rate. But there's another question here that we'll just address. Uh, it's this current home I'm renting in has some slight water damage from the particle board swelling. Fluke accident. I've called several pros and it can't be fixed. Landlord is ticked. Can she sue me for the cost? So, Josh, can a landlord sue you for the cost of a replacement like that? Or is the deposit all they can take? How does that work? You are liable for any damage done to the property. And if it exceeds the amount of your deposit, yes. So just remember, we're differentiating here between damage and normal wear and tear. So let's say she sues you and you show up in court. The question, you've already admitted, hey, this happened. The the question is, is that normal wear and tear that should be expected? Or is that damage that you inflicted by neglect on their property and therefore they should be compensated? You agree or disagree, Mr. Jeb? I agree. Um, what I will say is in almost 20 years of doing this, I don't think I've ever 
seen it actually a landlord actually go after a tenant and i mean I, i've never seen a property bad enough the damage bad enough for somebody to want to pay an attorney to go through the process to go through that i mean attorney cost time all of that stuff it would have to be sizable damage for somebody to want to take that on um because otherwise they'd just be breaking breaking even at the end of the day so i think it's probably less likely um that that anything happens but you know it Should. could happen Nicolette yep. has a kind of a, a series of questions here, and I don't know that you're going to be able to help too much with the first one. Um, trends overall, I'm in the Sacramento area, follows up with, are you experienced with how this will affect VA loans? And I didn't see any question before that. So Nicolette, if you're still here, um, what are you asking? Will it, will it impact VA loans? And then she had another here says the intent is to live there. However, if there are circumstances such as orders in another location, you have the validity to not be able to live there. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of your occupancy affidavit, you're saying I intend to occupy that property within 60 days of closing. You're not saying I'm going to live there for the rest of my life. And with the VA loan, lenders know for active duty that you could get orders to another part of the world six weeks after closing. You didn't know that. So um, it's what is foreseeable? It's not, hey, oh, I bought this and oops, I didn't know I want to live on the other side of town and therefore I'm going to rent it out. Good stuff. Um, there was a question along the lines of refinancing with the same lender. Um, oh, I saw it. it. It was a good one. Trying to find, find it. And I'm going to answer this one because it's pretty darn easy. Aretha right. says, I want to build a home for 400000 income 100000 roughly. Credit 710 and 748 with FHA. FHA construction loans are very rare, few and far between. There are not a whole lot of lenders that are doing them. Um, I have access to them. I don't know where you are in the country. Um, the other big lender that, that we have in, in the network also has access to them. So reach out on that referral link if you want help with that. 90% um, of lenders that you reach out to are going to tell you, no, it doesn't exist or we do not do them because there aren't a whole lot of investors that actually do them. But everything you described there should absolutely be possible. All right, Josh, I do not see the question, um, but it was along the lines of basically, should you be loyal to the person that did your loan um, or do you, you know, should you go somewhere else? And, and what I would say is uh, it's uh, call your lender that did your loan, assuming you had a, a, a good experience um, and let them give you a quote and then compare it to other quotes and then see what the terms are. Um, you know, assuming they did their job the first time you were happy, you wrote the good review and all of that, then that's the person that you should probably use, assuming they're offering competitive rates and fees. If for whatever reason they're not now, then yeah, you can go a different direction. But I would say more often than not, assuming you didn't talk to the guy, you know, the kid in the call center and you actually used a reputable lender, chances are you're probably going back to that person if they did a good job. So if I found the comment, Jeb, and a couple of, a couple of points to that. Could you chase the best rate you can get or stay loyal to the original of your loan? Loyalty is earned. So hopefully that person did a really good job for you. So that's the first part. If you felt like they were okay or they did a decent job for you, you got okay terms, there's, you don't have to feel the need to stay loyal to them. Hopefully they earned your loyalty. And if that is the case, which is probably why you're asking the question, the biggest trouble I see people get into is chasing the best rate. So whether that means they have a terrible experience or there's a rate change, things don't quite end up the way they should have been. Um, the, the most common call I get is, um, I talked to you and I went with this person and now we're closing in four days and everything went to shit and there's nothing we can do to help four days from closing. So as I always say, it is important that you get good terms, competitive terms, but it is not the most important thing. There are a lot of worthless loan officers out there and realtors on that site. You have to find someone that is an expert that you know, like, trust, and communicate well with. So if you found that, be loyal to them. Yeah, and if you found any value in tonight's episode, do us a favor, hit the thumbs up. Um, if you aren't subscribed to the channel, you should be. Uh, I would appreciate if you would do that. Uh, if you haven't gone over to the Educated Homebuyer podcast, checked out the last two to three episodes or really the last two of the last three episodes where we talked to Barry Habib and this last week to Matt Graham, really predictions on the 2024 housing market uh, with regards to rates, prices, good information out there, guys. Um, you know, and it's, it's all data dependent, right? It's not, uh, you know, opinions. I mean, it, there is some opinion there, but it, it is really based on data than it, you know, more so than anything else. So go check it out. And if you're not subscribed there, that would uh, uh, be greatly appreciated as well. So Josh, 
you know, people think we're signing off because I did that. You know, what if I tricked them? What, <laughs> what if I tricked them? We just stay them? here for an hour and a half more. Yeah. So here's a question from, it's a good question. Um, something that often comes up. Willing says, what is wholesale lending? What is direct lending instead of indirect lending? What is wholesale lending and what is direct lending? What's the difference in the two, Josh? So a direct lender is a lender that closes the loan with their own funds. That does not mean they're going to keep the loan. Most likely they're going to sell it. So within 30 days, 60 days, you're going to get a notice from your new servicer saying, hey, you make the payments to us. Doesn't necessarily mean they sold the loan. They may have kept the loan and sold the servicing, but most times that loan gets sold. Wholesale lending, really, it just it, it puts one more person in that chain. So a broker has 30 wholesale lenders to pick from and they package the loan for, and they process the loan. So they get your loan application, all your documentation, they do all the processing, they send it to a wholesale lender who underwrites and funds the loan in their name. Um, now, the, the bigger difference there is for direct lending, are you dealing with a big national lender that really they have one option on their rate sheet and this is what the rate is? Or are you dealing with someone like us? A lot of our conventional and VA loans, we're going to close in our own name. United American Mortgage is the, the parent company that we work through. Um, and the majority of those loans are going to close in United American's name. But it's going to be sold to that end investor. The difference is it makes it smoother, more seamless, easier, and transparent for you. So we're still able to shop 30 different lenders to find the best terms, but we're going to close it with our funds and sell them the closed loan versus sending them the loan to close in their name. Really no difference at the end of the day. And if the terms are good, you can get a great deal from either one. Good, good. Uh, ZL had this question earlier. Josh said, what costs are associated with a VA Earl? Um, is it much cheaper than a conventional refinance? Uh, not really, because you have all of the same costs except for an appraisal. With an Earl, you can do it with an appraisal, but you generally do not need the appraisal. So 450 to 650 of savings there. Um, but other than that, you're going to have all the same costs. You're still going to have escrow, title, credit report, all of that fun stuff in there. So similar, but but a little cheaper. And But outside of the cost, what's one of the biggest advantages of, of the VA Earl versus uh, just a traditional refinance? You don't have to qualify for it. A VA Earl or an FHA Streamline, in addition to not needing an appraisal. So if property value goes down, doesn't matter. If you lose your job, doesn't matter. Some lenders will have an overlay where they require you to document employment but not uh, the actual income, but FHA and VA do not require you to have a job. They have to, They require that you're on time with your payments and have been at least for the last 12 months, and then uh, th that we're, we're lowering your payment. Both of them have guidelines. The primary criteria is, hey, have you been making your payments and are we improving your terms enough with a low enough cost that the recoupment period makes sense, that someone's not just selling you a loan just to sell you a loan. The crazy thing is before VA changed those guidelines three or four years ago, we would have people having borrowers pay three points to buy down the rate on a one-year arm that that rate's going to disappear after a year. So um, some good safeguards in there, but both of those are awesome programs. All right. Uh, Josh, where do you get your plain hats from? Do you have any plain hats? Plain it's hats? Just that, yeah, well, I think your he is Hard to see the uh, the the font on it when you wear it, maybe. So the the I he think. is greater than I obviously come from them, and the melon I have the those melon hats, which awesome. Jeb, yeah. Jeb got to have a wonderful call with the uh, guy who's made bajillions of dollars selling our hats from from melon. Pretty crazy story that guy has. Um, a very very humble guy. Um, good stuff. He's he's he seems like a great guy. Uh, don't know him, but um, was was fortunate enough to be on a call with, with him talking and, um, found a lot of value in it. So, uh, Josh, um, let's nail one more question here. Um, this seems like a good one. Where are the crash bros? <laughs> they're still making, they're still making videos, cherry picking data and telling you that just wait, I promise next month is when it all hits the fan. You know, somebody said recently that, uh, some of these guys were starting to change their tune. And I was like, you can't like, you can't, you can't, you can't be on that bandwagon for two to three years and now and now say, oh, you should buy a house. I mean, come on, right? I cost you 40% appreciation, but now I've got the numbers. It's safe for you to buy. Oh, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, no, it wouldn't. Uh, but here's the deal, guys. We're on for an hour tonight. We'll be back next Wednesday. What's next Wednesday? The 13th uh, at 5 o'clock, another live show. And between now and then, Josh, what what's our podcast next Tuesday? 
what do we record today? Oh, the the, the, the true, true cost, of, cost. Of, of, of buying a home. So everybody just thinks about down payment, thinks about closing costs. We kind of go five, six layers deeper and talk about other costs that are involved in that process, things you need to consider as a first-time home buyer. So check out that episode next Tuesday. It'll be on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, all those good places. Uh, in the meantime, we appreciate you guys being here. Um, you know, if you need a lender, realtor, that link below will get you there. And if you haven't done so already, hit the like, subscribe to the channel. Josh, I'll let you exit tonight. Um, we're getting to that part of the year where we see a lot of forecast predictions. We've had two guests on over the last few weeks. We're going to have two, three more with their projections. And last week's guest, Matt Graham, was the first person that I heard a lot talk about base case. And what does the base case mean? It means we're making a projection. I don't know what's going to happen. He don't know what's going to happen. Jeb don't know what's going to happen. Base case is based off of the data, the analytics, my research. This is what's most likely to happen. If what happens is worse than that. Here's what I think would be the cause of it. Here's what would happen if it was better than that. So it gives us a range of potential outcomes. What's most likely what would have to happen for it to come in better or worse. If someone is just telling you, hey, this is how it's going to be next year, and they don't give you a range of potential outcomes and some reasons why that might be, I would discount that opinion. But it's an important time of year. It forecasts in all sorts of things, what the stock market's going to do, what the housing market's going to do, what the Dodgers are going to do next year. So think in terms of that. I think it's good information. And uh, if you want to hear more about it, listen to Matt on the uh, podcast from last week. All right, guys, until next week, as we always say, buy right, borrow smart, build wealth. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.